I'm Arlen Hamilton, and this is Your First Million. I'm a venture capitalist. I started my fund Backstage Capital from the ground up while I was on food stamps. I have now invested in more than 100 companies led by women, people of color, and LGBT founders. After having raised more than $10 million, people often ask me how I did it. I created this podcast so I could tell you my story and so that together we could go on a journey and speak with some of the most successful people in the world from all backgrounds and walks of life to learn how they got their first million. And who knows, maybe I'll reach my first million in personal capital while I'm recording this series. There's only one way to find out. Let's go. Hello everyone, it's Arlen. It is towards the end of November here and I'm back. I think there was a lot of time off um, since the last episode and I just wanted to say thank you for coming back and listening. And over the past few days, um, I've heard from a lot of people who have been saying that they've been binging episodes that, that I might have recorded 2019 or earlier in 2020 and I just love it I know I've said it so many times but I love the fact that something that we recorded 18 months ago or 11 months ago or two months ago can still resonate with people and how that is um, you know we did the math on that and thought at any given moment there's someone listening to some episode of this of this podcast that's the type of thing that keeps me going and really, really makes uh, a lot of things worth it. So, so grateful to you for being back. This episode is a is a really cool interview and it's a little different. I love that too. I did a few interviews in a row recently that I'm going to be releasing um, a little bit at a time. So this first one is Diana uh, Demina. She is a Broadway producer. And she has been doing this for about five years, just like I've been working on backstage or had backstage going. And her story is really cool. What she does with her um, kind of power and influence and money and talent and skill and um, I think good, good intentions and all of that is just really powerful. It's very interesting. I I had never thought about getting into the Broadway production side of things, not necessarily like the production side, but the investing side, until I started talking to Diana. And actually, what something really cool happened. At the beginning of this episode, or at the beginning of this interview, you will hear me talking to Diana about a Kickstarter for a short film. And it was the first time she was hearing about it. I had just invested in it or um, donated to it, I should say. And after this interview was over, she went and found that Kickstarter and she um, donated as well. And so the two of us have now joined forces with a lot of other people to back this short film. And um, I hope you'll go check it out, learn more about it once you get into the interview. Um, other than that, I think, uh, this is the first time that I've put out an episode since Biden and Kamala were officially, officially made the, our incoming, um, incoming administration. I think even, I think I might've even released an episode like the day of the election or a couple of days before something like that. I don't remember. It was all a blur, but I know that I was stressed, I know that I was worried, and I know that we all were kind of just holding on to the uh, edge of our seats there, and this outcome is just brilliant. Now, we're going through some stuff still, you know, some people don't like to leave, making it harder, making doing some dumb things in order for us to not forget his name, uh, but I'm not going to even say his name, but that's going to be over soon, and we have so much to to make it through and to get through but man I can tell you this I believe 
again. I am, if you know me, you know I'm always optimistic, but this this outcome is just, I don't know where my mind would have gone if we didn't have this outcome. I don't know if I would have been able to believe in this country, um, believe in much of a future, at least for the next few years. But we would have all found a way, I think. This way, we don't necessarily have to find that same way. So couldn't be more thrilled, totally excited about it, and ready to hit the ground running. Um, I'll catch you another time. This interview is is a real deep dive. You're not going to want to miss a minute of it. If it, is, it has been a few days, a few weeks, so I will refresh your memory uh, grab a notebook. You're going to want to grab your your first million uh, makeshift notebook that I know you all have, that you ordered. You have it. It's just uh, a pen and pad or something on your laptop or something to that effect, and you're taking notes from every episode. It's what I do, and that's what I would do if I were you. So without further ado, I think I'm a rapper now. I will let you uh, enjoy this interview with Diana Domina. Diana. Hi. Good to talk to you today. Uh, it's been fun getting to know you. W- would you like to uh, tell the people your name and occupation? Sure. Uh, I'm Diana Demena, and I am a, a theater and film producer based in New York, um, working on Broadway, off-Broadway, in documentary film and feature film. Oh, wow. Wow. So I knew about the the Broadway. I don't know if I knew about film. So we'll Mm -hmm. we'll have to talk about that as well. I just today backed in a documentary. It's a short film uh, about women who are shackled in prison while they're giving birth. Um, And it's a film to highlight that. And apparently it happens a lot. And it's for the safety of someone, I guess. But that is incredible, right? Wow. I know, I know. So I think they're almost to their goal. So I'm very excited. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's obviously something most people don't realize. I I think I knew it happened every once in a while, like for very specific cases, but apparently it happens all the time. So sort of a standard practice. That's appalling. Yes. I mean, that's absolutely appalling. Like you, I had heard this but i thought it was oh you know in really extreme cases where somehow someone thought it was warranted exactly the idea of shackling and restraining women who are giving birth as a matter of course yes is inhumane so this uh, show for anybody listening is called uh this short film is called the bond the woman who is directing it she is the product of this. She was born in a prison with her mother shackled and has given her life to, to trying to change this. And, and this is her way of expressing that. And when I posted about it, I mean, just posted about it a little while ago when I did it, I got so many messages from people saying, yeah, can you believe it? This happens. This is what we're trying to do about it. And I'm like, my goodness. So it, um, the power of documentary is so 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 important and it can be so it can be life-changing life affirming all of that so let's get right into it having that you know saying that because it kind of speaks to why your work in the film documentary space and also in the in theater Mm -hmm. because of the projects that you choose is so so important do you want to first um, kind of lay the foundation of what you were doing before this because a part another part of your story is that it wasn't like you were in high school and said I want to go and produce uh, uh, projects like this. No not at all. Um, I was 50 before I started this part of my career. Um, so yeah I um, I started out with a degree in communications and I thought that I was going to work in advertising and PR. And I saw myself as this, you know, as coming sort of into my professional life in the eighties. And I thought I was going to be this dynamo career woman. And I didn't see myself with a family. I thought I was just going to like rise to the top and then, you know, drop dead in a boardroom or something. And, and so I had this idea of who I was and um, 
I came to New York right away and I got a job doing exactly what I thought it was I wanted to do. And then I realized I hated it. Um, and I would probably, you know, go crazy working in an office, um, in this, in a, in a structure. And I realized that I was actually much better kind of on a project basis and, um, working with small teams of people and having some independence. Um, and so after a couple of career changes, I ended up in philanthropy and, um, it, it actually is the same skill set as producing. It has to do with team leadership. It has to do with um, being able to organize people around a common mission, goal, story. I mean, you can fill in the blank, but fundamentally I learned that um, getting people to care about something, to be motivated to do something about it and to put in the work to change something um it, it's the same skill set as producing um and now that, now that you've told me about this documentary called the bond um you can be sure that i'm going to find out about that and <laughs> see how i can help change that um yeah. you know you, you can't fix it until you know about it um which is why storytelling is so important and why um i really like to promote storytelling across disciplines across media because stories hit people differently in different forms. Mm. Some people really respond to documentary film, as you say, right? That can be life-changing. Some people have their lives changed by seeing something in a theater. You know, they'll come in and sit down and the lights go down and the story happens and that will be a seminal moment in their lives. Um, so people take in information and get sparked by information in different ways. Um, so I think that for me, it's really about the storytelling piece and less about the medium. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, we'll go into kind of the logistics of getting into the, the producing world because you're actually helping me learn about it. So, you know, that that's, I wanted to share that with this audience, but I will say this, you're absolutely right about that because uh, my mother, she's been kind of living her best life the last couple of years here uh, after fighting and beating cancer. And, and we now have, and that just happened a couple of years ago, uh, less than that actually. And, and we also now have the means to travel and do things like that. And so she was visiting me at, a, at an event in the Carolinas and Hamilton happened to be playing. And she stayed an extra day because she said, I'm going to go see Hamilton. I'm going to be a little bit, you know, do a little thing. So she goes and she sees Hamilton and now she's absolutely in love with that show. She's always quoting it to me and singing it to me and <laughs> watches it on, on Disney all the time. And she's gone to New York now and watched some plays. And it's not like she wouldn't have, you know, she's seen plays before, but I think something about it is like being immersed in it. So now what she does where she did right before COVID is in Dallas, she would drive like 45 minutes or an hour out of her way to go to the tiniest little theater to see, and maybe it's 12, 20 people can fit in these seats to see a play because now it's something that is just so exciting to her in a way that film is a little different. So I am, that's I, absolutely I, right. I'm just smiling my head off over here listening to you say that because um, I, I love that your mom got the theater bug, you know, got exactly. bitten by the bug, yes. and that she also has kept that and um, spread it around by going to support a small production, right? She didn't just see the biggest phenomenon on stage, you know, in recent history and say, oh, that's what theater is. Right. She actually took in the intimacy of the storytelling. And so for her to value a tiny production in a little theater by probably amateur actors and drive to go see that, that's the passion mm -hmm. that, that theater can 
engender oh, in yeah, people. Right. And I mean, that's just such a gorgeous story about your mom. She's done it more than once. And she's just, she's always bragging about what production she saw. And uh, it kind of, again, just dawned on me. She'd probably, probably really love hearing, learning the things that I'm learning about production, uh, how that works in the theater world. I'm very, you know, I'm days in, but I'm sure she would love to learn too. So I'm definitely going to bring her along to any, any kind of uh, thing that I do. So let's talk about that. You're working in nonprofit. You're mm -hmm. in New York, right? New York this right. whole time, right? And yeah. you're there. You're, you're doing a good job of it. You like it. Where did you even get the idea to get into theater? So it really had to do with balancing um, family with work. Um, I was, I, I love to work. I have always loved to work. Um, leisure is not that interesting to me. Uh, I, you know, I know people enjoy it and I watch them do it and I think, oh, that's nice. I've got to go do this. I'm just not, you know. Um, so the idea that I would um, get married and start a family and stay at home in the sense meaning I wasn't going to work, that was a non-starter for me. On the other hand, my husband and I were much older when we had our kids and I did really want to give them my time. And so what I ended up being able to do was um, I took over our family foundation, which I ran, and um, it allowed me to work part-time, uh, often on my own terms, and around the needs of my kids and my family in a way that I could feel good about. Um, so I had this sort of perfect world I was able to craft and I had said, I'm going to stay home until my youngest is 10. Hmm. Each of my kids gets kind of a solid 10 years of a stay at home, although work at home, but stay at home mom. And that felt good to me. Uh, and I put that in the back of my head and went about my life and then right around the time that my youngest was 10, uh, a woman friend of mine called me. Now she had grown up in Hell's Kitchen and the neighborhood that encompasses the theater district and Times Square. And she had been an, a theater usher as a teenager. Some of her lifelong friends were still ushers and stage managers, very much involved in the craft and behind the scenes. Um, and this friend of mine, Denise, had gone into finance and made a bunch of money and said, I think I'm gonna start investing in theater. I'm gonna go to this presentation of a new show. Do you wanna go? Honestly, thought it sounded like fun. I love the arts. Most of our philanthropy at that time was in arts, education, and kids. And so I had, you know, tendrils into the arts community in New York from a, you know, from a philanthropic right. perspective. And a kind of more passive observer, uh, patron, yeah. patron of the arts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. From, from that seat. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, still very much a fan and a supporter. Um, so I went to a presentation with a with my friend and a producer who I now know well. Um, and the show was Waitress. Hmm. And Sarah Bareilles' play, yes. uh, her, her uh, musical on Broadway. And I got super interested in the process. I honestly hadn't been a huge Sarah Bareilles fan before that. Um, now, of course, getting to know her and her as a human and her heart as well as her music. Now I'm a giant fan of yes. Sarah, the 360 degree human being, um, but I didn't really follow her music all that much, but I, I knew the story and I knew that Waitress was written by a brilliant young woman who wrote it as a film and then was suddenly and very brutally murdered in Whoa. her apartment with a young child. Whoa. And it's, no a, idea. yeah. Um, and so somehow all of that 
just kind of came together and I thought, oh, I'm supposed to do this. Mm -hmm. This woman's story, um, the fact that it was being adapted for the stage, um, I knew that, you know, her estate included her child and there's a child in the story. So something about it all just kind of came together and I said, I have no idea where this goes, but I made one initial investment. I bought like the equivalent of a share, <laughs> this tiny little thing. Um, and that was my first investment. And now five years later, five and a half, maybe, um, you know, I, I am a peer of that lead producer making my own shows and hiring my own teams and, you know, making decisions about what to support and what to bring forward. Um, so it was warp speed, like you, like, right? Like it was like, you how know. Many, how many shows have you done? Because we're going to dig into it a little bit, but how many wow. overall have you done? Uh, I should go count all the posters on my, on my <laughs> wall outside my office. Um, either as an, in, either as a significant investor, a co-producer or lead producer, uh, 12th. 12 and five years and this is a a, a, kind of like doing a a, a, an independent film every 12 every you know twice a year more than that yeah so Um, can can i ask you this and and because this this podcast the listeners are a combination we're we're entrepreneurs we're investors we're aspiring both uh all from different walks of life so I want to break it down a little bit because they, they usually they'll get out a, a notebook and really write this stuff down. Great. So you said you, you went to a preview. Yes. Of waitress. So I, in Los Angeles, when I was spending time in Los Angeles in my, in my thirties, Sarah Bareilles would play at my favorite um, joint, which was hotel cafe. And mm-hmm. so I got to see her in that singer songwriter, songwriter crowd move up and move up. And all of a sudden her song was on a television commercial. I'm like, who is that? That's that song I hear like every other Friday. Yep. And so that's been a really cool ride. But so because of that, was it a difficult sell? When you went to this preview, was it like really competitive or were people like, you know, we, we, this is something that we hope gets picked up? By then the show had been pretty well developed. Um, so the, the road to Broadway is incredibly long and a musical the size of Waitress, um, that can take five to 10 years in development. So from the time someone has this idea of what they wanna do, it's just a really slow kind of behemoth industry. Um, and it's it, you know very different in that sense from, from doc film and even from feature film. You, you really can move a film. Um, theater is just, it's a long, slow slog, partly because, um, well, there are a lot of reasons. Their musicals, especially large shows are really expensive. Now, when I say expensive, um, right now, a large Broadway musical probably costs on average 16, 18 million. Mm. Not a huge number in LA or in Hollywood or in, you know, in, in a lot of other industries. Um, but a lot of money to raise for theater. And I think, you know, with a lot of people here being around tech, they know that's like, you're talking series B territory, if you know, (laughs) to to relate it. it. It's, that's, that's a big deal. It is, it is a big deal. And, you know, not dissimilar to the way a founder in, your portfolio might have to start with the friends and family round, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's, so it's not dissimilar in, in the sense that it starts small and you have to make every dime count in the beginning. And, you know, a little by little you get momentum, people who can help you start to pay attention, the name people who are, um, prominent directors start to pay attention, but it's a slow growth. Um, and so Waitress at that time had been through a number of those preliminary rounds, if you will, by the time I saw it. Um, and in fact, it was, it was almost to Broadway by then. 
Mm. but it had had um, it had had a developmental production at American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, had been workshopped numerous times before that. So um, now I see things in the early, early, early incubation, or, um, you know, I get a script, I was just going to pick one up, I get a script, and it's just literally on paper. And it's, yeah, it's no development. The, it's yet. the MVP, as it were, it's the, it's the precede stage. I'm just trying to relate it to everybody <laughs> listening. That is, that's cool. And of course, that's intriguing to me. One of the things that I think we should definitely set the understanding of is that you're also not you're also like choosing projects based on certain criteria mm -hmm. what is that criteria for you right and i again i don't know your business as well but i think it's like an impact fund right mm -hmm. it's the mm -hmm. the idea that um there are lots and lots of wonderful stories and there are probably people who are interested in telling lots of different kinds of stories um my firm really focuses on um, new voices, uh, new narratives, narratives that have not been shared or have not been shared from a particular point of view. Um, we like to find and elevate um, new artists, whether it's new writers, new directors. Um, ours is an industry where um, the pipeline excuse gets used a lot. Um, and we believe that the pipeline, there is a pipeline problem, but that's our problem to solve. That's not, that's not a barrier. That's an opportunity. So, um, so we will typically be involved in stories um, by newer writers with newer directors and um, in some way, the story serves an underrepresented point of view. Mm -hmm. And I wanna talk about a project or two, uh, maybe the one that I saw a little preview of at Makers, but before we talk about one in particular, can you just say for people who hear impact and they understand that you're enjoying yourself, has it also been a uh, good re return on uh, an investment? Oh yeah, oh absolutely. Um, you know, one of the great opportunities in this pandemic, though it has been devastating, um, it has also created opportunities to dispel a bunch of myths. Um, you know, what, the first being that somehow um, investing or backing something that has purpose and that is ethical and that creates opportunity that somehow that's that's a separate category from things that are profitable and I actually think that um, in our in our production company the the ethos is people projects profits and they're tiered with people at the top um, and it really has served us unbelievably well. Uh, for example, the project that you were mentioning, which is the, the play, What the Constitution Means to Me by Heidi Schreck, um, that was from a percentage standpoint, probably one of the most profitable plays of its size ever on Broadway. Mm. Well, let's talk about it then. I want to know how many tickets were sold and I want to know how from the, the moment you saw it at first, what that was like, what made you even interested in it? Um, so Heidi Schreck is a multi-hyphenate creative person. She is a writer. She's a performer. Um, and she had written a very autobiographical fundamentally one woman play about how the US Constitution over time has shaped the lives of women in America, starting with her own family. It was a very intimate story. Um, and she told it from the point of view of her 15 year old self as a debate competitor. So she traveled the country earning money for college, really socking away her college tuition by winning constitutional debate competitions. 
And as she got older, and, and as, a, as a young person, she just thought the Constitution was the Holy Grail. I mean, it was, and as she got older and had life experiences as a woman in America, she started to really question this document that she had so loved. And so she was grappling with this herself as a woman and an artist, and she decided that she was going to use it by writing this show. So when I went to see it, I was knocked out because I had never seen anything like it. It was unique. It was a point of view that was completely unique. Um, it was about women. It was about power. It was about our constitution. It was about you know the, the fundamental under, underpinnings of America and looking at them in a very real uh, and very relatable way. And so um, I just, I went, just thought it was incredible. It was at, a, at a, a nonprofit theater here in New York. And when a show is at a smaller nonprofit theater, sometimes it can transfer to Broadway from the nonprofit realm to the commercial realm, like I did, right? You right. work in the nonprofit <laughs> realm and can you, you know, can you transfer a show to the commercial realm? And is this what's considered like, off Broadway or no? That's not yes. off. That is yes. off Broadway. Okay, so it's yes. it's past the point of is that your local theater? Correct. Has some sort of someone else has given it legitimacy as well. Yes, exactly. This and is it it's New York passed. Theater Workshop in New York. It was um, it was at New York Theater Workshop, so it had gone from two very small nonprofits um, to a larger nonprofit and. And that would have kind of been the end of its life, you know, produced life, performing life. Mm -hmm. um, but there was such a there was such a potency to the piece that New York Theater Workshop kept selling out, and then they tried to extend it, and then they would sell that out, and then and so my partners and I looked at this and said, okay, we're not crazy. People want this show, like. Mm -hmm. It, there's really something here. It was just, you know, it was like mining gold. It's like, oh, this is a nugget. And so the idea of taking a tiny little show, first of all, there are all the biases in theater. Plays by women, vastly, vastly underrepresented. In fact, in the year that we brought Constitution to Broadway, it was the only play on Broadway by a woman. What, what, what year was this? Uh, 1924? Was 2019. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would think. There, there wow. are probably more plays by women in 1924. Things have gotten worse. Right. Now. So this oh, is 20, 2019. Mm -hmm. That's right. It was... It was <laughs> 2019. Had we, had we not brought what the Constitution means to Broadway by hook and by crook, there would have been exactly zero plays on Broadway by women than in that season. And before we started talking about the details, you said this has gone on by percentage to be one of the most successful Broadway mm -hmm. plays. Yeah, we returned 150% of our investors' money on a limited run on Broadway in the smallest house on Broadway, the <laughs> tiniest theater on Broadway, and we returned 150% on the Broadway production. Then the, the Broadway Mothership LLC, that receives a percentage of profits from the tour, from the film. Whoa. So that was just box office. Incredible. How many, we, how many people? We knew we had. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, please. We, but we knew we had to do it. Mm. We had to have, that show had to make money. It, there was no way that we were going to fail because if we had brought this quirky show with a weird title about the U.S. Constitution where one woman who's not a star takes up three quarters of the play standing up talking directly to the audience, it was such an outlier and mm -hmm. so such an unlikely show that had we failed, we would have set back umpteen more years, the next 
playwright who had a play that fit that bill or the next woman who wanted to write a straight play and not a musical. And so we had that weight going in. And what an incredible weight to have, though. Don't you wish we, we, we sort of had this leeway that so many people have to just fail quote unquote fail or to not do as expected but you saying that almost makes me sad because it's like you would have you you would have put a, a show on broadway but it would have been considered a, a failure that's if right you hadn't done a certain number somewhere and then it would have hurt other people's chances of getting on broadway as a woman that is what's wrong you know that's that's the odds that that so many of us are against and it's just incredible but you did do well and it did, did turn out. I want to know how many tickets were sold because I wanted to say how many people saw it, but I'm sure people came back and saw it more than once. So that how is, many tickets were sold in that previous in that uh, Broadway session? You're so smart. Yes, the entire Broadway run was approximately sixty thousand tickets. Whoa! So only sixty thousand people, or you know, we don't know that those are discrete people, but even yeah. if even if ten percent were repeat sure. 50,000 plus people basically it's 50,000 yeah. yeah. plus people who had the you know ability or the access to be able to walk in and you know put their behind in one of those red velvet seats and and have that in-person live theater experience versus the entire population of people who might be interested or moved or reached or angered or have a response mm -hmm. to being able to see what the constitution means to me. And that is, um, that's a, a you know, huge uh, issue of access and um, equity, right? Equality. So now that's, that's the problem I think with theater in general is um, that it is so elitist. It's elitist in presentation it's elitist in so many ways um and that again is one of the great opportunities of the shutdown as painful as this is for so many artists um the barriers are starting to kind of fall apart and now you can see theater on zoom and you can you can see productions that were recorded not particularly well but you know somebody but it used to be that we weren't allowed to show you those because right, there was right. always this kind of, so some of the silos are starting to crumble and access will get easier. Um, and I, for one, am really excited about that. Yeah. And I, I, as someone in LA, as someone in LA, I've, I've heard that thousands of people are out of jobs on, on Broadway uh, from actors to people behind the scenes to even uh, wait staff who you don't, necessarily equate to that so in this time of covid and new york being hit one of the first and hardest new york city especially what do you do as a broadway producer who is on a high from 2019 when that all kind of has to be confronted within days mm -hmm. what do what do those february and march meetings sound like and look like um or I guess it's say March and April meetings. Yeah, um, those those meetings were about how to um, how to lock things down, how to um, how to hit the pause button. We didn't know we were shutting down for so long, so that became okay. Uh, we had a, we had Constitution was on tour at that point, so we had a company of performers in Chicago. So that became, how do we get them home? How do we wind down their apartment leases? Um, how do we keep them on insurance? What happens to payroll? Um, you know, that was triage. Mm -hmm. What happened from April to now, I think a lot of the industry has been focused on reopening the, the buildings, the actual theaters. How do we get the doors open? What are what does public health look like? Could we do it this way? Could we? So I think a lot of the industry's attention has really been focused, future think on how to get reopened and how could we do that and what would that look like? And that's unbelievably important. It's missing a piece, and that's the piece that I've been working so much on, which is the people. 
yes, we have to get reopened. We have to try to, you know, crank everything back up. It's like a big carnival or a circus. And all of a sudden it just stopped. Right. Yeah. And people were on the Ferris wheel. It's like, okay, well, we got to get those people down from the Ferris wheel safely. And I think a lot of people are focused on trying to crank back, you know, the circus back up. My concern is who's going to be there when the lights go back on and everything starts where, you know, and I think that um, it's really important for um, producers, for um, artistic directors, anybody who has capital to focus on the people, to focus on, because when PPP ran out and there was no extension of those benefits, um, a lot of people in our business became insolvent. They sold yeah. apartments, they broke leases, they left the state. Left the town, left town. They yeah, left. That's a big deal. Um, and so while I understand that the theater owners and you know some of the powers that be in terms of tourism and Times Square, and you mentioned the ancillary businesses, those, those have to be shored up. And at the same time, I am watching an, an absolute um, hemorrhaging of human creative capital out of the city. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. So there are lots of people working on it. There's an organization called Be an Arts Hero, and they're working to lobby um, for the Save Our Stages Act, for the Dawn Act. There's all of this political lobbying that's going on, which is unbelievably important and, you know, probably would have been for naught if we did not have a Biden-Harris uh, win. But because we do, there is hope that yeah. the federal government will actually start working with us. But there are lots of good people in my business who are focused on that advocacy. Uh, there's another organization called the Costume Industry Coalition. And these are just exactly what you think they are. The sewers, the workrooms, the milliners, the shoemakers, everybody who makes all the costumes and the, you know, backdrops and all of those things. Yeah, you know, some of those people have been doing that work. They're craftspeople who've been doing this for 60 years. Mm. And those workrooms were closed overnight and with no protection, you know, no no second round of PPE of PPP. These are people who can't support themselves, who can't live. So I'm very focused right now on the human capital. Um, and so professionally, commercially, what I've done is staff up. So, you know, when there is no work, you create work. Mm -hmm. um, we have so many projects in development right now, all of which are going to create jobs. Um, I've hired more people at my company, um, brought more people in under our roof right now so that they have income, they have insurance, they can stabilize their families, they can stabilize pieces of their own community. Um, and so I've been focused very much on just investing in people. Yeah, you, you remind me, that, that strategy reminds me of Cuban, Mark Cuban, who I get to work with. On, on different projects, uh, including our fund. Um, and we had a conversation in April, I believe, where people were really, really scared. And he was talking directly now to those small business owners and also larger business owners. And he said, go out and hire. If you can, hire. And because and, this is going to pick back up again. Now, w when we don't know, how do you look at that? Do you, do you sort of... Um, put a time on that like I, it kind of changes every every other day yeah. for me but I I'm now I'm at the point I'm saying okay maybe by the end of next summer 2021 that's when I'll be able to get on a plane again or something like that is that kind of do you even dare to do that or is it more I like, do I mean okay. I, yeah I dare I, I dare to do pretty much anything um <laughs> you don't need me to tell you how smart Mark Cuban is so I think that Mark Cuban's position is 100% right which is you know, it's like, when do you buy a stock? When it's devalued, when yeah. it's undervalued, right? Because you know it's going to grow back. When do you invest in people when you want to shore them up and retain them? I know that my projects are going to be funded. They're going to be rehearsed, ready, rewritten. You know, work will have been going on all of this time so that 
all of the work that that my office is doing is we're going to be in the starting blocks you know right in our ready position so that whenever that starter's gun goes off we're going to sprint like we're ready and that's cost money um but that this is the time to expand this is the time to bring people in and create those jobs because i won't have to go around looking to hire people who have left the city you know because i'm out of touch and i don't realize oh those people are all gone yeah. i have them they're with me they're working with me every day so i'm going to be fully staffed and my shows are going to be developed and ready to go um i don't have a crystal ball but i am aiming at probably fall 21. Mm -hmm. can i be a little can i be a little uh i'm gonna push it just a little bit because sure. you just said something about being out of touch how do you stay how do you personally um stay in touch i don't know if you had a chance to listen to the amy griffin uh episode of the first million of course and we talked a lot you you heard we talked a lot about well how 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 do you then stay in touch? You're someone who is, is openly admitted that you, you have money. I mean, you know, you, you, you have done well in producing. And although the pandemic has not missed anybody, you know, not missed a, a darn person. How do you say, I know what it's like for that Milner uh, uh, that makes $14 an hour? Mm -hmm. um, because I know them and I talk to them and I spend time with them. They're my colleagues. Um, when, I, when I'm working in a room, they're all different kinds of people in the room. And I build, I mean, when they're my rooms, I build them that way on purpose. Um, I know a lot of artists. So whether it's actors who go from show to show and job to job and just scrape by in between, these are my friends. These are my colleagues. Um, you know, for me, it's not like, oh, well, I have this life and their life is something else. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with money. Um, and so all of the values that I had then are the same values I have now. Um, I remember when I met my husband and I said, you know, so what's it like to have all that money? And he looked at me and he said, I feel exactly the same as I always did. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, bullshit, come on. <laughs> like, you know what? You, you kind of are who you are. And That's I think right. That's money right. makes you more of what you already are. Um, and so I look at money and capital and, and the ability to move it around um, as an extension of my values and um, the incredible amount of respect that I have for people of all different kinds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's easy for me to know what's happening because I'm sitting with those people and I'm talking to them and generally I'm working with them. Um, sometimes I'm working with them to help them get to the next thing they need to do, but it's so different from the, what I wanna think of as sort of typical idea of, of what helping is or even mm -hmm. what philanthropy is. Um, I, I don't subscribe to the hierarchical view of um, investing or philanthropy or even just helping someone. Um, yeah, I think I think you're about to say something that I I just said in my last call. You say saying it. how can we how can we support the question was how can we as privileged people support some of your founders, mm -hmm. and I had to set them straight and say look I feel honored to be able to they're letting me invest in them. That's right. Yeah. So is that is that did I jump the gun there or was that you had it exactly? Which is this is not a one-way street. This is not like, oh, well, I can do for someone. It's, that's not what this is. This is about being in relationship with people and it's reciprocal. If I, um, if I decide to, to back a show written by a playwright who has never had a show produced, that's my privilege. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I get tremendous, um enrichment and so you know i'm not doing him a favor i'm not doing her 
a good deed mm-hmm. um you know it's it's we're, we're exchanging something yeah, and that so talent is being is being exchanged what a wonderful thing to be able to do just like what you do which is to see talent and intelligence and passion and drive and hard work and what an amazing thing it is to see that and recognize that and say yeah like great how can i how can i get behind you because you're already doing it Mm -hmm. like you're and so it's just i see it as um it's a partnership it's not like one person is this and one person is this it's like we're doing a thing together because you as a as a um a founder or a creator you're the one who has the thing right you've got the thing of value um it's a privilege to be able to be in service to that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so I, the reason i know what other people's lives are like is because i i live in the world with other people very intentionally and and you know very openly um, and they bless me with the same treatment right yeah. um you know you and amy talked i think when you and, and amy talked um on on this podcast earlier um i think you guys talked about something that you said something that a lot of people don't say which is that having money causes people to also underestimate you, put you in a box. And Mm -hmm. so I'm always grateful when people meet me and they see me for me and that it's not a decision that they make about who I am based on where I live or or what I look like or what shoes I have on or so what, I mean, it's, it, that is. Or even, or even just thinking maybe this is a vanity project for you rather than this is this is your heart and soul and what sounds like to me i don't i can also be presumptuous here it sounds to me like this was a calling and that's why it happened when it happened because you were in this room you described earlier and it was almost like something was compelling you to go towards it (laughs) and that's how i describe the work that i do at backstage i had been chasing dreams for my whole life which is a beautiful thing to do but the first thing that actually worked for me and put all the pieces together just in the right alignment was the thing that was calling out to me rather than me going towards it. Yep. And so I can see you walking into a, a, a project if people are ignorant to your story and to, to your work and thinking, oh, okay, she's, she's coming and she's going to write a check. She's not, she's, it's, it's going to be on you know, executive producer, but we're never going to really see her at the office. And then are they, you know, they might be surprised when you're like rolling up your sleeves and rolling up every day. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I not the people you not. work with, but I think that that in general, that's what I was talking about with Amy Griffin, which yeah. is that yeah. sort of, you just, you just never know what someone is up to and what, what someone's going through. Um, I, yeah, I, exactly. I, you know, which is, which is funny because it's also the reason I don't Google anyone. Um, yeah, I don't because I don't actually want to know very much about you, Arlen, until you tell me or until I experience you, because now there's just all this, they're just layers and layers of other people's opinions Mm -hmm. about who someone is or what someone is. So I don't actually spend a lot of time, um, thinking about how other people might prejudge me. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just too old for that. And, and I know myself so well. Um, but if you say, Oh, if you step back, do you think that there are people who look at you and think, Oh, well, it's just a vanity. Yeah, sure. Probably. Well, they, uh, they're certainly disavowed of that, of that notion as soon as you get in there. I mean, and that's what I think is interesting. And, 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 I, I think some people, if they just see a tweet here or uh, even an interview there, they may think that I have very specific views on privilege, people who have privilege. And then they get surprised when they hear me in a second time talk about my own privilege, you mm-hmm. know, and talk about that. And so it's just on these layers, as you've put it. I think as we start to um, kind of wrap up here, what I want to do is is have you briefly talk about this very particular arrangement that you have with some of your partners um, where you had it just struck me where you have um, kind of empowered so as I saw it in, a, in an article you've empowered 
some some underrepresented producers. I'm now calling them underestimated because I'm borrowing that from you. Wonderful. I yes. appreciate that. I hope that's okay. I, <laughs> I credit you when I say it, but No, yeah. I love it. I love it. It's absolutely okay. Yeah. And I want to tie that, you could tell the mechanics of that and why that was important and then tie that into what do you want to see more of? Like, what are yeah. you advocating for? Absolutely. Because they're really one and the same. Um, so one of the things that I was able to do um, is to create an intrapreneurial structure for Plate Spinner Productions, which is my production company. Um, I There are some unbelievably talented sort of mid-career producers and the way our business works you really don't start to earn any money until projects reach a certain you know until they kind of kick in right mm -hmm. and they start to earn money but there's as you know a huge developmental window in which the the producers are typically not getting paid um, and that's a huge problem with our business that has to change, but we'll do that on another call. Um, but what I was able to do was to um, to to work with two um, incredible, incredible producers, Rachel Sussman and Brian Moreland, both of whom were were working independently. They're both they were both really talented independent producers, um, and and they were rolling that big rock uphill. Um, and making real progress and um, pre-pandemic and then the pandemic hit, the industry came to a screeching halt. Um, and I wanted to offer them the umbrella of Plate Spinner Productions to give them a home base and security, but I respected them way too much to try to hire them. Um, you know, because it, 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 I don't want a hierarchical structure like that. That doesn't move anything forward. So rather than try to hire them and bring them in with the promise of security, but asking them to give up autonomy, the ability to lead their own teams. And so, so we worked it out together where they work 70% of their time is spent on plate spinner projects that stay in-house and then each of them, each of them retains 30% of their time to either continue projects they were already leading before this um, or to work on separate projects. So they have an intrapreneurial structure um, and that allows me to have creative producers in my office where we don't have just this myopic silo of, oh, well, we all work for the same company and we work on the same projects. They're, they're also independent autonomous people who come and go with their own ideas and their own priorities. Um, and it has been wildly successful. And it's a structure that I would encourage so many people to think about because we get the best of one another all the time. Um, and they're very different from me. Um, you know, Brian is black, Rachel is queer, you know, I'm this kind of boring straight white lady, and we just have this chemistry that is, it's alchemical, yeah. because we are bringing the best of ourselves and not giving up some of the best of ourselves in, to, to trade it for security. And so that has ended up being this kind of amazing um, cauldron uh, and now, of course, we're getting thrown all kinds of projects because everybody now wants to work with us because we're doing this funky, cool, buzzy thing where the three of us are, are exponentially so much more than just what we were each doing. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if anybody is looking to innovate um, and you have the ability to create new structures, to um, bring people in without taking them over, yeah, that sounds that, like I think something. Most exciting. Sounds like some of the venture funds uh, managers and, and listening could get something from that, including us at Backstage. We have something similar, but it's not as defined as you've said it. So it's even getting me thinking about how I can uh, do that because so many people at Backstage are just so incredible on their own. And I've said that each of them could start their own fund but maybe even taking it a step further. And then it sounds like something that a lot of different types of companies and other producers could think about. 
Um, and then, so is that what you want to see more of, or do, is there something like, well, what do you want the world to look like five years from now in, in the, in the Broadway, uh, uh field? Um, I want the stories on stage and the stories on screen to look like the world. I want them people in the audience to look like the world. I want all of the power structures to, um, to, to be redistributed, to be less white, less male, less, less of that, you know, the, the male lens, the white point of view, everything being centered around whiteness is a huge problem in storytelling. And just like if I had used a traditional corporate structure where I had just hired people, right? I had sort of made them in my own image and likeness, right? Would that have made my life better? Would that have made any of the, pro no, it wouldn't. And so by, by working to, um, to de-center whiteness in storytelling, we're gonna get better stories, more interesting stories, stories that everybody can identify with. Um, I know we're wrapping up, but I'll say just this, that the, the next project, and on Tuesday, we'll have an announcement that this show is coming to Broadway. It is a play called Thoughts of a Colored Man. It was written by Kenan Scott II, who has never had a play on Broadway. It's directed by Steve Brodnax III. Everyone here has a, has a little, you know, title after their name. I'm gonna have to make one up. I'm now gonna be Diana Demena the fifth. But yes. um, yeah, I know you it. They're very the first. You could say the first. There you go. Um, and Steve has not had an opportunity to direct on Broadway. That's what I want. I want people who've not had that opportunity to get the opportunity and to and to be backed in that opportunity. And I want to stop having a conversation about black shows. There's no uh -huh. such thing. There are no uh, black shows. What is I, that? Can I tell you something? I was on, I won't say the streaming service just because people can say, call it out. Well, everybody's doing it, okay? Everybody needs to hear this. I was mm -hmm. on a streaming service the other day looking through and there was a black story section. And it's like a family film here and a love story there and a comedy. There. And I'm like, what's a black story? I don't know. Exactly. Means. There's it's no such thing. thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We need to stop that. That's nonsense. Mm. It's it's just it, it you know I could go on and on. It's part of this caste system that the book. It's colonialism. Uh, it's oppression. Yes, it's all, yes. right, and it means that all stories are then contrasted with and centered around whiteness, as if they're the, the default. As if they're other. Right, like yeah. suddenly white stories are the default. Are every these stories, and that's what, you're absolutely right there because when you say black stories, you're saying that white stories don't even need to have a qualifier right. in front of it. It is oh, well, the default. Exactly, and so that's the world I wanna see. Mm -hmm. I want stories to be stories. If there's a story about a, you know, pers a queer person of color from halfway around the world, I'm interested in that story. I don't need that story to be about somebody who looks like me and walks like, I mean, how does that make mm -hmm. my world better? Mm -hmm. I know that story. Mm -hmm. I wanna be interested in that other person's story. And so I want all those silos to go away. Um, they, yeah. they exist for a reason. It's not an accident. Um, the power structures are very much in place for reasons that no longer serve us. Um, and so I want to see the way stories are made, who gets to tell them, and whom they're for, whom they're intended for. I want all of that to start to just even out and um, go away so that we can see each other, be interested in each other, learn about each other, and share parts of ourselves in narrative, whatever form it takes so that we have more in common than we do different. I think that's the perfect way to end this conversation. I know there will be a part two because I'm going to have to have it. Um, Thank you. I would I love your that. Time. Yes, I appreciate your time. There's so much more. And as I get to learn more and more, I'm going to ask more and more questions and share that with the audience on my journey to learning about this sort of Great. Investment. I mean, there are some parallels. And I'm, it's fascinating to find out that there are parallels in story development the same way that there are parallels to you finding founders and makers and helping them develop 
right? Their product. So there's yes. actually a lot that we do that's very similar. So it's exciting for me. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Tell people how they can uh, keep up with you. Do you have any social or? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so we are Plate Spinner Productions and that's platespinnerproductions.com. We're also Plate Spinner Productions on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook. Uh, my personal Instagram is just at Diana Demena. It's public, so you can come and follow me personally if you'd like. Um, and I would welcome, you know, a chance to come and back to come back and talk to you anytime. Truly, Absolutely. yeah. So, we're gonna do a check-in. I think I think there's like a series here that I, in the making because we're gonna do a check-in. I would love that right. anytime, anytime. Awesome. Thank you awesome. so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. All right. Take Thank care. You. episode so i would love to keep up with you online you can find me at arlen was here on instagram and on twitter that's a-r-l-a-n was here i cannot wait to continue this conversation with you your first million is produced by anna eichenawa executive producer arlen hamilton associate producer chacho valadez